Hello, and welcome to Metachemistry. This is episode eight. In today's episode, we will begin our mission breakdowns of the ITS season 12, starting with Panic Room. It is understood that Infinity is a mission-based system. That means that the driving concern for any ITS engagement is accomplishing the primary objective of the mission or scenario that has been selected. The fact that the ITS system is mission-based sets it apart from most other tabletop war games, where unless you're playing a narrative campaign, you're generally engaged in a kill scenario, where you are incentivized to kill more enemy troops than kill you. Not so with Infinity the game. Infinity prioritizes accomplishing the mission above all else. Defined simply, mission is a specific task with which a person or group is charged. So to win in Infinity is not necessarily equivalent with killing more of your opponent's stuff. In fact, it is quite common in Infinity that the winner of a given scenario has suffered more casualties of attrition than their opponent. However, they have attended with razor focus to accomplishing the very specific set of criteria that the engagement required for success. In fact, becoming too kill-happy can sometimes set you up for failure. The very best rarely fall into this sort of trap. They are ever and always mindful of the mission at hand. This reveals a truism within the game, that the ability to stay on mission is a skill in and of itself. So what are some practices you can engage in in order to hone your ability to stay on mission? Allow me to suggest the following. One, Take inventory before every game. Do not just saunter up to the table with a general list and without a plan. Conduct an analysis of the tools and the strategies you will need in order to be successful in the specific scenario you're about to engage in beforehand. In other words, prepare yourself. Know what you have and know what you can do with that. Secondly, do an autopsy. Conduct a post-mortem or an in-depth analysis of the mission before and after executing that same mission. Ask your opponent what they observed about the game. What were they afraid of or thought you would do? What might you have done differently? In other words, dirt dive the mission. Cannot say this enough. It is crucially important to learn and improve from every game experience. Third, practice. Train when not on a mission. Find ways to up your skill levels, either playing games to sharpen your tactics or learn new techniques to succeed in tough missions. This is the essence behind the various exercises Wise Kensei does with his Bromad Academy. Try to learn something new and push yourself beyond your boundaries. Fourth, prioritize and execute. To execute on a mission, you must prioritize your actions by constantly asking questions like, will this target give a high return on investment? How important is it for the success of the overall mission? Is the time optimal for engaging with that target? By prioritizing, it enables you to be effective. You can't afford to engage with just any target that comes your way. You must choose your battles. And finally, develop what military commanders call front side focus. Focus on one target at a time. Do not change your focus until you have dealt with the first target you prioritize. I can't tell you enough how many times I've seen someone engage in a line of approach only to jettison it the moment it didn't go immediately the way they thought. If you've done a good job of prioritizing, it sets in motion your next chain of events. Don't hop around. Stay focused. When we look at this episode and the mission that it encompasses, we want to help you do these things so that you can become a better Infinity player. But before we get into all of that, let's first check in with our lineup for episode eight. Ian, how are you? You've been wanting to get into mission breakdowns for a while, and now it's finally here. What's going on, buddy? Just sitting at home right now. We had to uh, do some extra quarantining, unfortunately. So that's been a lot of fun. Been climbing the walls, doing a little bit of converting work for some 
Ariadna profiles that don't have models yet. So that's been a little bit of fun. Other than that, yeah, like you said, I've been wanting to do this kind of thing for a while since we want to focus on ITS. I think we really need to get into specific missions and how to accomplish those. I think one of the things you regularly talk about when we have these discussions is how you tailor your lists and your list building and everything around mission-based, like the mission at hand. So what do you find valuable about the mission-based focus of Infinity? The mission-based focus, like you've talked about, a lot of games is about you know killing the opponent. And there is a mission for that. It's called Annihilation. There's a couple of varieties based on that. But the majority of Infinity missions are not about killing your opponent. It's about, you know, capturing a flag or holding an area or different things like that. And it leads to a variety of gameplay factors and keeps the game from getting stale and boring, in my opinion. And specifically with ITS, I like it because you go into an ITS event, you know ahead of time what the missions are, you know you're going to have two lists to work with, so you can custom tailor your lists so that at least one of your two will be able to complete any of the missions, you know, any of the particular missions that you're going to be playing. And you can have time to work on your strategies ahead of time, play those games, get the feedback, see what works, adjust things. So you have a finely tuned list and approach before you even get to that tournament. And that's what I like about ITS so much. Yeah, I think it's worth highlighting also that we have, by nature, have to have in discussions that are a little bit abstract, but the missions very much help us to focus our energies and our thinking. And so I think maybe that's also why it's exciting to break down some of these missions, because it allows us to get pretty particular. Also on tap for tonight, and part of our lineup is Devin. Devin, you've been um, getting in some TTS games lately. I've gotten to watch a couple. Unlike the rest of us old farts, you are willing to embrace new things, technology, you know, as the younger generation. So what are your thoughts on the platform? Tabletop Simulator is, it's a good option with kind of the current social climate right now. It's not a perfect solution by any means. It it can be a little clunky and sometimes uh, a little awkward to play around. And games are noticeably longer than than you might expect on the table. But I do enjoy getting a couple games in and being able to play it all. That was pretty refreshing uh, since I haven't gotten to sit across the table from somebody in quite a while. So yeah, it's not the best possible solution, but I think it's the best one we have right now. Yeah, the best of a lot of bad options. Exactly. Uh, let me pick your brain on the idea of the mission focus of Infinity and that, like the nature of that. When you are coaching new players into the game and introducing them to how it operates, I'm sure you've had the experience of watching them get red-eyed and ready to just rip into their opponent. And then they have that that game, that experience where everything seems to be working for them. They're, they're killing everything that comes across in front of them, and yet they're not actually doing much for the mission itself. How do you help them navigate the change in focus from other tabletop games to Infinity's mission-based style? While a lot of tabletop miniature games have some sort of objective system, a number that I've played will still give you an automatic win if you table your opponent. If you wipe all of their forces off the map, that's always a win condition in some games. And Infinity, you can't do that. It just doesn't work that way. And so I think to get past that kind of uh, bloodthirsty approach is you just kind of have to let it happen a couple games. You just let them chew through your units and realize that, oh, well, that mission, I went eight and two, but you've got three guys left. And that happens one or two more times. And usually that's enough for people to kind of reevaluate and realize that that's not enough to finish the mission. And in some cases, particularly detrimental in the case of triggering retreat, since a lot of missions will end right there. 
And so you might cut a game early and find out, oh, I, I was thinking about getting objectives, but I went too far and now I don't have the opportunity anymore. So I think that's one of those lessons that's really easy to teach just by letting someone experience it, because it's hard to dissuade people that come from uh, some other war games to not want to blow stuff up off the table. I think experience is the best teacher on that one. And the best experience is seeing them go cross-eyed after they have that happen. Wait, I didn't win? Yeah, it's like, look at all this stuff I've got, and <laughs> what do you have? I have all the boxes. I do love uh, pulling a win when somebody puts me into retreat. There, there's been a few times. Yeah, you've done it to me. Yeah, or I just go, I just smile, and it hits my turn, I go, I win, good game, and my opponent goes, what the hell? And it's like, I control the objectives, I don't even have to spend orders. Thank you. Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, even a veteran like myself, I've done that. I, uh, I remember a game he and I had recently this summer where I put him into retreat and uh, he he took the win, one zero. <laughs> like that's and that's uh, that's a valid win. What we're going to do then is we're going to start um, a series where we deep dive in on all the different ITS missions for season twelve. And we thought as we were planning the episode out, we thought we would begin by looking at some of the newer ones. Uh, we'll eventually get to all of them, but I think right now one of the missions that is a mission du jour in a lot of the online tournaments that are happening is the Mission Panic Room. So all the members of our team have had a little bit of experience, some thought into it, as well as some game time and table time. So let's start with Panic Room. And to get us going, I thought, Ian, you could break down the mission overview. Like, just give us the nuts and bolts of what is this mission? Walk us through the mission and what are the objectives? This mission is a variation on the armory mission where there's an objective room in the center and you win the game by occupying that objective room. Now, how this differs is that it's not an armory it's a safe bunker because the biotech vor virus is coming to get you. So on top of the normal restrictions that you would have playing a game of armory, now you have all the restrictions that you would have playing a game of biotech vor and you have to keep moving your stuff closer and closer to the center of the board because every turn the biotech vor virus moves in another four inches from the board edge and anything that's caught in that zone has to take a BTS save against damage 14. And if they have structure, they're taking two BTS saves. So it quickly starts messing things up. And anything that you have at the end of the game in that zone is automatically killed. There are a couple of antennas that are at the edges of each deployment zone that if you're in base contact with, you ignore the effects of the Biotech 4 virus. But that's going to be a little situational based on the table uh, layout and some other factors, those can be destroyed. But primarily, you're going to be moving towards the center of the board. Now, winning this mission, you get, uh, out of the 10 possible objective points that you can get for this mission, you get one point at the end of each game round if you have dominated the panic room by having more points worth of models within it. You get an additional point at the end of each game round if you have at least one not, uh, essential personnel trooper inside that room. And essential personnel troopers are lieutenants, guys that have uh, number two, NCO, or chain of command. Uh, if their headquarters or uh, troops are a character classification, they also count for that. Then at the end of the game, if you have more victory points on the table than the adversary, more points of guys surviving, that is, you'll gain three objective points. So if you've dominated all three turns, had an essential personnel all three turns, and more victory points in the game, that's your nine. There is one classified objective. However, no HVT is used, so you're using a limited set of the classified deck to do this mission. Great rundown. So I thought with that in mind, uh, Devin, you could talk to us about how some of the in interesting features of this mission. But before maybe getting into that, talk us through the new scoring rules because uh, ITS 12, season 12, has had a revamp of how 
we do scoring. And so sometimes for, for those who are new to Infinity, you might hear veteran players making references to a variety of different classifications like main, major and minor victories and that sort of thing. Those are just a holdover from the old way we used to do scoring. But we are, we're all kind of on the same footing now with the scoring um, for Season 12. Devin, could you at least walk us through the scoring system first and then maybe highlight for us some of what you think are some interesting features of the Panic Room mission? To determine tournament results, uh, that's going to be based on the number of tournament points, first and foremost, that you accumulate throughout the event that you're playing. And then there's tiebreakers beyond that, of course. But winning your game at all by any number of objective points gets you three tournament points now, whereas previously you would need to get more than a certain threshold compared to your opponent's score. If you tie with your opponent, you get the same number of objective points. Both of you get one point. And if you lose, you don't get any points. This season adds modifiers to your score. Uh, you have the offensive and defensive bonus. So the offensive bonus is if you scored five objective points or more, then you get plus one to your score. And you can get that whether you lose, you tie, you win. As long as you get at least five points, even if you didn't come out on top, uh, that can still give you an extra point there. And then the defensive bonus is if you have a close game, basically. If you lose by two objective points or fewer, then you'll get an extra point on your score there. So the maximum possible for a given game is going to be four points. And so that's you win your game and you score at least five objective points. That's your best result in terms of a tournament points perspective. Now, again, objective points are usually the next tiebreaker. So you ideally want to get more objective points, but that's kind of the baseline to get your best showing from a tournament perspective. Makes a ton of sense. Do you have an opinion? Do either of you have an opinion on why Corvus Belly made this switch, the change in scoring? I think that they did it because there have been a number of players that look at the game and they try to min-max the scoring system, as it were. And so by adding the offensive and defensive bonuses, it gives a player more incentive to continue fighting the fight and doing their best in the mission, even if they're losing, because there's still a chance that they can get some level of tournament points and increase their ranking, even if they are just getting pummeled. I've seen a lot of players, especially newer players, unfortunately, that will kind of throw in the towel very quickly and become very demoralized if they're losing and just they don't think that there's anything they can get out of it, even though every objective point matters, every surviving victory point cumulatively for your tournament will matter. And I think this is just one more way to kind of reinforce that every point matters mentality and keep people in the game and continuing to fight until the very end. Devin, why do you think they went this direction? Yeah, I mean, I largely agree with Ian in terms of an engagement perspective, because you want people to try and make it through their games and have as much fun as they can while they're competing. And, you know, it's it can be a problem for tournament organizers sometimes to have people drop out. Plus, that's just a negative experience for someone like if they're having a bad enough time that they don't want to continue. And so much so that they are done not just with that game, but with the whole event, then that's that's obviously undesirable and something that you know you want to avoid. And I think on the other end of the spectrum, as far as the change from uh, minor and major victories, is that now if you're winning, you're getting a decisive number of points over your opponent. Uh, so the people that are at top tables are going to be most wins, whereas that wasn't always the case in previous seasons, where you know you could kind of skate by um, with uh, some minor victories and kind of get uh, higher than it seemed like maybe you should. But yeah, I, I think that it just kind of spaces that out a little bit more cleanly. Yeah, also just to offer an anecdotal experience, uh, occasionally I've had the experience where I've taken a hard, uh, like a, a narrow loss, a tough beat, first round of a tournament. And in the old system, that meant I got put in the bottom half um, right off the bat. 
and I was being matched up with someone who maybe got tabled or took a 10-0 loss or who wasn't very good at the game. And the idea that someone who's a more veteran player than matching matching up with someone who's a complete novice in their round two, just it just felt a little bit absurd that those two losses were valued the same. And it creates kind of a feel-bad moment for everyone involved, I think. I kind of like the idea of even if you're taking a narrow loss, there's ways that you can be scoring and showing up well in the tournament structure. I think it will balance out the field a little bit more over the course of a tournament. Do you guys have any thoughts with that? Oh, I agree. Uh, Like you mentioned, any level of loss put everybody that lost into the same category. And I've had much the same experiences that you've had where I have had, unfortunately, been paired with somebody in the second round of a tournament after I lost the first that was very new to the game and had only played a couple of, I think it was their third or fourth game ever when they got paired against me. And I tried to be nice about it, but you know, as a tournament, you're still trying to go for the points. And they gave up at the beginning of their second turn because they felt there was nothing that they could do. And even though I was trying to say, well, you know, you can still do this, this, and this. And it potentially can avoid a little bit of that. Like it could still happen depending on performances, but the potential to get one or even two tournament points, if you manage to get, you know, both the offensive and defensive while still losing, which is possible in a lot of missions can help alleviate some of that in the pairings and keep the skill level more even amongst the players after that first round. Yeah, and let's be real. Like, Ian, you matching up with somebody who's had two games in their their gaming career with Infinity um, and scoring a big win on that person, that's a bit of, of an absurd win compared to someone taking a win over a, a veteran, you know? And so it just feels like maybe this provides for a more honest tournament system, I guess. I would agree with that. Where you're getting matched up with people more in your skill bracket. Yeah. So one thing that I find interesting about the defensive bonus in particular is that it only applies to losses. So if you tie, you're eligible for the offensive bonus, but not the defensive bonus, which I, I'm not certain if I feel like you should be eligible necessarily. Maybe you should. Maybe you shouldn't. I haven't quite decided. I haven't actually played in any full-on events to really see the effect. But it is possible to get just a tie without the offensive bonus and someone else to take a loss, but get the offensive and defensive bonus and end up ahead of you in the tournament rankings. Do you feel like that's a more honest assessment of where things are at? Or do you feel like that's a problem, Devin? I haven't seen it in enough events to really form much of an opinion either way. I mean, kind of an instant gut reaction when I saw that was that it seemed kind of odd that it's possible to lose but do better than someone who played to a draw. It seems kind of off, and I can understand why that might be kind of disconcerting for someone who's in an event and you're like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have gone for that last point. I would actually be ahead in rankings. So I I think my initial reaction is that it seems kind of strange and I don't think that I like it. But then if you gave it the defensive bonus, just by definition, you'd always get that second point, which is that a bad thing? I don't know. I I guess for me, my reaction to that is I like that they're trying to incentivize the what we just talked about in the intro to this whole episode which is the purpose of this game, to win in this game, is to play to the objectives, to score, to work the mission. Rather than being cagey and playing defensive, you're going to benefit from trying to take down as many objectives as you can, even if that means a loss. It behooves you to try rather than play it safe. Let's then dive into some of the more unique features of this particular mission. Devin, I was thinking you could talk through some of the some of the aspects of Panic Room that stick out to you. It kind of first impression with this mission is that there's a lot going on. You have the biotechivore area that unlike uh, the 
biotech warp mission. It surrounds the table instead of just comes from the deployment zones. You have the confused deployment, so you have a penalty for trying to deploy outside of your deployment zone. You have to keep track of essential personnel. I guess you don't have to keep track of HVTs, and you pull out the HVT classified, so there's one less thing to worry about, I guess. But uh, in one of the games that I was playing, I forgot to not do that, so we did have HVTs anyway. But, you know, I don't think that ended up mattering too much. There's no retreat in this mission, so there's no uh, instant snag of victory by dropping your opponent too quickly, like we talked about earlier in this particular instance. And then, of course, there's the antennas that Ian touched on where you can be safe from the zone while still in it, but you run the risk of someone blowing up the antenna and kind of taking away that safety net. How about you, Ian? Any interesting features that when you kind of read through the mission at first glance and then as you've sat with it that you are struck by with this mission? The antennas specifically this is something that's very new like we've dealt with biotech 4 zones we've dealt with confused deployment those are both features of the biotech 4 mission but the specifics of the biotech 4 antennas and creating this potential safety zone is kind of new it's almost a throwback to the frostbite mission from last season where uh you had to be heavy infantry or touching one of these eaters in order to not take damage from or die from the the cold front that was coming in. So I like that they kind of took that mechanic and transferred it over. And another aspect of that, like we've mentioned, is that those antennas can be damaged and destroyed. They're not particularly tough. They're only Armor 3 and BTS 3 and have two structures. So you can destroy them fairly easily. You do need an anti-material weapon, but unlike many other missions like looting and sabotage where you have to destroy an antenna with a cc attack that with anti-material this one you can destroy with any attack that's anti-material so a da sniper rifle allows you to do that and there's a lot of potential there however if you have a template weapon like say uh, a missile launcher you can target either the antenna or the troops in contact but you can't do both yeah, it's one or the other. An attack can't affect both at the same time. So I think that's kind of an interesting new aspect. One other thing that I felt like stood out that I didn't catch on my first read, but when I had kind of gone over it again leading into some of these games, is the confused deployment. It forces you to make a Fizz minus three roll regardless of what stat you might test on otherwise, or if you would even need a roll if you deploy anywhere outside your deployment zone. The interesting thing to me about it is that if you fail, you just deploy anywhere in your deployment zone normally, not on the edges like other things that penalize you when you fail a deployment roll. Which means that unless you are in a marker state, there's no downside to trying that extra deployment. If you're in a marker state, then that may be worthwhile to, to hold off and just deploy in your deployment zone, depending on the piece. But if you're for deployment or infiltration or anything like that, you might as well be throwing dice on it because otherwise you're just doing what you would be doing anyway and deploying your deployment zone normally. Uh, so I thought that was kind of curious because usually that's not the case. Yeah, that's a great point from my own personal experience. I've had some interesting decisions using some of my infiltrators and having to decide, do I want to make the roll or not? How much do I value the marker state or not? But I'll tell you one thing that. Uh, initially, I thought was a bad feature for the faction I run, which is Aleph, in that net rods seemed kind of a bit of a liability. With that particular rule of how you deploy them if they fail on their roll, not as bad as I initially thought. So it's it's good to like take some time to really dissect a mission, not just give a cursory glance, like really get into it. And like I said at the opening, do an inventory of the mission and your what you have available to accomplish it. It really helps you as you kind of plan out your strategy. Speaking of strategy, let's get into that. I was thinking about the features that you guys were just highlighting. And when we talk about missions in general, 
oftentimes you'll hear people say, this is a kill mission, or this is a button pushing mission, or maybe this is a area control mission. This particular panic room is a bit of a hybrid in that it incentivizes killing, or maybe even more specifically, the preservation of your own troops on the one hand, because you're scoring three points at the end of the game over who has more army points left. But it's also an area control mission because you're trying to get into and dominate a particular zone. And so it brings a, a variety of different strategies to bear. And I know when I first was um, playing this mission and on, and on the first couple run-throughs, I was definitely thinking of it more in terms of that area control and how is I going to dominate the panic room over the course of three rounds. But over time, I kind of shifted and evolved to thinking much more in terms of how am I going to preserve my army points and do enough of the controlling of the zone to score a victory. So let's get into strategy. That kind of like highlights how we think about this mission, general strategies. I think this is going to beg the question a bit, but I might as well ask anyways, what do you guys think? Does this mission benefit going first or second? Oftentimes with missions, there's a value to either having the first turn or the second turn and getting to kind of determine the tempo and pacing of that game can oftentimes lead to a win or a loss. Do you guys think that this mission benefits one over over the other? Yeah, I would say that it definitely leans into an advantage for the player going second. I mean, that that's going to happen to some degree, no matter what, for any mission that scores points at end of round uh, or end of game, just because you get final say on what's happening that round. Like if you, in this mission, you see what's in the room, you have a vague idea or better of how many points are in it, you know exactly what you're going to need to do to get enough points in that room or uh, how much of them you need to get rid of in order for your existing troops to dominate the zone. So I would say, in general, second turn is going to be preferable for this mission, in my mind. There are some advantages for going first. If you do want to try and control the room early and make it really difficult to be dug out, but I feel like that's you spending your orders to put yourself in a position where your opponent is going to have tools in mind for this mission to try and strip you out of the room. So generally speaking, I'd say going second is better in this mission. Yeah. How about you, Ian? Do you have a hot take and you disagree or, uh, or do we have consensus here? In general, I would agree that going second in this mission is beneficial for the reasons that Devin has pointed out, primarily because it scores at the end of the round and you get final say on things. However, if you do find yourself going first, there are some pretty legit strategies that you can employ, uh, especially since there isn't retreat in this mission, that you can go wholesale and try to murder everything that your opponent has as efficiently as possible and get maybe one model into the room on the off, you know, a, a cheap model, something, you know, infiltrated or, you know, if you don't have a, a cheap uh, skirmisher just to maybe control the room on the off chance, especially if you can get something that has that extra point for essential personnel. Uh, I wouldn't count on it, but if you focus the majority of your efforts on murdering the crap out of your opponent so that they can't get into that room, overall, it's going to help you. And, you know, you might score those early points and get that long-term objective point rolling. Yeah, definitely. So before we get into what, what our general strategies are going to be when going first. If there's a general consensus that end of game, end of round scoring benefits going second, let's talk about our strategies that we bring to this mission. If we end up winning the role and either choosing to hold initiative and go second or to pick deployment, trusting that your opponent will choose to go first. How do you set up your strategy and thinking about how you're going to approach this mission? One thing I don't think that we've touched on just yet for this mission is the 8-inch deployment zones. That's a not insignificant distance further apart you're going to be from your opponent, which I think also kind of mitigates that, that first turn rush a little bit. But uh, it also it constrains your deployment, of course, so it's harder to find places to get your models. 
but it does mean that you're able to bunker down a little bit more. You have to be careful with that. You can't give your opponent carte blanche access to the board, especially when you know more than half the points from this mission are from controlling ground. But I feel like in the experience that I've had with this mission so far, you can be pretty conservative with your deployment and just try and keep eyes on the room itself. I don't try and cover the board with arrows. I don't try and see down towards my opponent's deployment zone. I just focus things in on the room. I have weapons that are trained inside the doors, which start open, uh, unlike uh, armory. And so that's usually enough to at least dissuade people from just running in there. And best case, you can even pick off some models that were trying to take up that space. Yeah, I would agree with that. Actually, in my experience as well, I think one of the values of going second in this mission is the ability to be reactive. You get to see how the map unfolds. You get to see how the movement unfolds. You get to see exactly how much your opponent is able to get uh, troopers inside the building or whether even they're even contesting the room. And then you get to react accordingly. One of the strategies I would recommend is that you take a layered approach. If you're going second, there's more options on the table for you. I think it's much more easy to potentially score points in the room each round than it is going first. And as a result, you can kind of determine how much you need to get in there, especially if you've cleared it out, and then how much you're going to expose yourself to the response of your opponent. So like for me, one of the things that I've seen pretty effective consistently is if you have access to cheap troops, warbands and the like, that are able to punch above their weight and are a bit expendable, uh, I would definitely prioritize throwing them into the room to clear it out in round one and round two and hold onto the room there and then use some of your heavier or more expensive troops later in the game. That's not across the board, but that's just a strategy that I've seen work well. But for me, the big thing is just you get to see where everything is and then just decide how you're going to allocate your resources to contest and score. How about you, Ian? When you um, are thinking about what you would do going second, how would you approach that? Depending on the army and your access to it, I would load up on a reasonably heavy amount of camouflage troopers. And especially if I'm going second, this is going to be to my benefit because you don't have to be the only one with troopers in the room. You just have to be the one with the most points of troopers in the room. And troopers in marker states still count. So if you're going second and you got a couple of guys that are in camouflage state that are infiltrated up or anywhere around there, all you have to do is a double move into the room. Because what is your opponent going to do? You're not revealing yourself, so they're left to discover you, which means that they're not shooting you. So you just move them in, load up your points to get it up higher than them. You know, if you have to take a couple of guys out here and there with something else, like do that. But keep in mind that they can't attack your camouflage trooper if you don't choose to let them. Be careful of things like mines, though. Like, those will still get you. But camo troopers are perfect for this to dominate that zone. Because you just walk it in, walk it again. What are they going to do to you? If they discover you, nothing. And there's a perfect scenario then where you have to make a choice in deployment. Do you want to risk the roll and deploy your camo troops just outside the room, making them that much more efficient to easily, within an order or two, dominate the room but there's the potential you fail and now they're not even camouflaged when you deploy them in your deployment zone that's a really interesting equation that you're having to calculate as uh, from the beginning and it'll also make certain troops that have the infiltration plus six that much more attractive because they're getting a blanket plus three on the roll you know they're effectively the same board wide as they would be infiltrating past the halfway point. You were already going to be doing that with them because of their bonus to that skill. 
So they're perfect for this. And, you know, there's only a handful of those in the game, but they are literally the perfect models to use for this scenario. As I'm thinking through your camo focus strategy, I think it, one of the criteria I would be thinking through is, are my camo troops cheap or are they expensive? If they're cheap, I'm probably more prone to try to make the roll and infiltrate them up because they're likely going to be the kind of troop that can trade up and they're excellent for just throwing into a room to clear it out. You don't care if you lose them. Whereas if they're more expensive, uh, they're more likely they're going to be the ones I'm going to keep in my deployment camouflaged. And to be honest, within two orders, maybe three at the most, you can get them into the room and dominate without ever revealing them. Exactly. And some of the camo troopers you can get uh, are faster than 4-4, so that can also be another thing to consider. If going second is beneficial, are you willing to keep initiative and choose to go second? If you win the lieutenant role, are each of you willing to keep initiative? Meaning, in essence, that then you're going to have to deploy first and then go second. Your opponent will get to see you deploy and then counter deploy you, and then they'll have the benefit of going first, but having counter deployed you. Yes. I totally would. Would I do it every time? Not necessarily, but I am no stranger to double handicapping myself in these sorts of scenarios. How about you, Ian? I think it would depend a lot on what my specific list was that I was taking, as well as what my opponent's faction was, and having a kind of an idea of what they might bring to the table. There's a lot of vagueness there that it would be hard to make a determination, so I, I would give it a solid maybe. I get you. I would say I would definitely started doing this with this mission. And part of why I am willing to do it is one, the deep deployment. Because of the eight inch deployment, you're already deploying deep. And so that's that much farther for your opponent to come across the board and alpha strike you. Two, the shadow of the panic room. Because it's infinitely tall, it helps bisect the board a bit. And so you can much more control where you're anticipating where your opponent has to come at you from and it kind of limits their options in engaging you and so you can even deploy within the shadow of that in anticipation and i think it just gives you some added benefit that just having that big obstruction right in the middle of the table the third thing is more of a psychological one but unless uh, your opponent has some real experience with this mission I think initially almost everybody instinctively, because of the way the mission's written and designed, they're thinking, I got to get into the middle of that panic room. They're going to be focused on the room, not on your troops. Now, that may actually be a mistake, and we can get into that in a little bit, but I generally feel fairly confident that given the option, my opponent is more likely going to focus on the room as opposed to killing and removing orders from my list. And so I feel even that much more comfortable choosing to hold on to initiative. Any engagement with that, you guys? No, I think that I'm I'm kind of in the same boat with you where I I don't necessarily enjoy being double handicapped, but I do really like going second. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I could definitely see myself doing that and have I've certainly done that before. We'll take it as a given, generally speaking going second is preferred. So maybe the more important question is, what's your plan if you are forced to go first for whatever reason? If you lose the role and you're not given the option of taking second, what is your plan? How are you going to crack the problem that is getting into that room, scoring the points? And really, in my experience, the fact there's so much focus on that room it really does become a kill zone. Everyone has a good idea of, oh, I'm going to get this badass in the middle of that room, put him into suppression, surround him with all my repeaters and hackers, and, and this is how I'm going to hold on to it. But as we've noted in the past, Infinity is a lethal game, and everything dies. And so it's tough to hold on to a room for a round or two without having that last rebuttal. So what's your strategy for how you're going to uh, approach this? 
my plan is that I'm going to focus on killing my opponent's models. If I can reduce the amount of things that they have to not only kill my stuff, because ultimately the objective points you're going to get in this mission aren't from holding the zone. The single biggest individual points is from having the most models left on the table. So if I kill more of your guys, I'm getting those three points anyway, and the less of your guys you have, the better chance I'm going to have of keeping my guys alive in the first place. I'm still going to have a few you know, models here and there that if an opportunity arises early on to sneak someone into that room to contest it and try to get those points, like, absolutely, I will take it. And, you know, every point will matter. But if I have to go first, I'm going to try to just kill everything that you have that I can, because not only does it help with my objectives long term, it's also without that retreat threshold, it's going to keep you from being able to not only not only accomplish the objective, but also stop me from accomplishing it in the later turns. Okay, so let me ask you a couple more follow-up questions. How then are you going to deal with the fact that with the 8-inch deployments on both sides, you've got an extra 8 inches, essentially, of field that you have to cross. You've got confused deployment. Your ability to walk on the board or on a table edge or drop a troop in or maybe some of the tools that you might uh, readily go to to help you alpha strike maybe aren't as reliable have you thought through like what kind of things you can do that help you get after uh, your opponent and strip them of orders bikes bikes (laughs) that's an excellent point not every faction has access to bikes not every faction has access to a lot of bikes but if you do have access to bikes i recommend taking at least one or two for this mission because you're moving eight inches on your first move and many of those bikes have access to some level of weapon that has a pretty decent range band whether that's a spitfire on an aragoto or a light rocket launcher or AP Spitfire on a Maverick, there are some options to get a decent ranged attacker that's on a fast platform that you can then get up there and mitigate that as well. Another thing is that forward deploying troops. Now, yes, they are going to take the minus three, but if you have access to things that, again, have something like an HMG or a sniper rifle or something that's a little bit longer ranged, especially linkable, and you can get those models forward. Even if the whole team doesn't get there, you're still going to be within four or eight inches of that deployment zone anyway, so you're still going to be in the link. That helps mitigate that range band, and you lose nothing by trying because you don't have to deploy on your board edge if you fail. You can deploy anywhere in your deployment zone if you fail. So by taking some of those longer range weapons but on a forward deploying platform, you have some options to potentially mitigate some of the, that range issue. That's great. How about you, Devin? What's your strategy if you're forced to go first? Uh, I think that it would be more likely for me to take kind of an opposite approach. Oh, I like it. A little bit of a debate here. Because I, I feel like it's easy to deploy very conservatively uh, in Panic Room. And so, yes, if there are opportunities to take out troopers, there's no reason not to take them if you have appropriate tools to sweep those arrow pieces, because the only things that are going to be exposed are dedicated arrows, by and large. But, yeah, I think my primary goal would be to get a little bit of my force in the room, try and get, you know, a trooper or two but then start layering defenses around the room as opposed to trying to stack everything inside of the panic room. Try and get those longer range pieces to cover avenues that are coming into the room, things that are seeing through the room. Now, most metas that I'm aware of, you can't shoot through both sides of a building. Let's highlight that into and out out of but not through, right? Just really explain that real quick because maybe everyone's not on the same page. Basically, how we tend to play is that if you have a building and there are openings, there's windows, there's doors. You can shoot from outside to into the building, 
and vice versa, but you can't shoot all the way through two panes. Like you can't shoot, you have your wall uh, with a window and then you can also see an open doorway. You can't shoot something outside of that doorway from the opposite side of the building. And like I said, I think most metas play that way, at least most that I've seen. American, maybe American metas or yeah, I, I, it's definitely a house rule or convention because I think even um, Infinity has rules for shooting through buildings like saturation zones or something like that. But I think the general convention is that it cleans engagement up. Yeah, I agree. And it's something that it makes play a little bit easier. And I prefer it. Uh, I have played at least back in N2. We didn't always play that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you guys don't, uh, we'd be interested to hear your experiences with that. And you know, how common is that for you? Do you guys shoot through both panes of a building? Or do you maybe not even play in inside buildings? Maybe all of your terrain is fully enclosed and you only play on the exterior and tops of buildings. So that'd be interesting to see if people play that way as well. But as far as going first, yeah, I would say layering defenses around the room as opposed to directly inside of the room and just making it difficult or at least costly to get in in the first place is usually how I would find myself playing if I were going first. I do think that trying to dominate the room first can be a bit of a trap. I think, generally speaking, if you are stuck with the option of going first, I generally think that Ian's strategy of stripping orders and focusing on kill is the better way to go for the specific reason that it dawned on me that to secure yourself a win, you have to do three basic things. You have to retain more army points than your opponent. You need to dominate the room with the extra point figure, whether it's a character or, or a number two or whatever. Um, you just need to do that once. That'll net you five points right there. If you preserve more points and you dominate the room once with the bonus point. And then if you um, do the classified card that you've been given, that guarantees you the win. There's no way you lose in that scenario. And if I'm going first, generally speaking, that's the way I would play going first. I don't. I feel like there's less room to make a mistake because every time you try to control that room, you're at the potential of losing valuable army points when your opponent rebuts and pushes back. That said, I would say I've scored a 10-0 on this recently, and I did it going first, and I did it by controlling the room right off the bat. And the main way I was able to pull this off was not through alpha striking, but I actually had a, a heavier hacking list than I might normally bring. I was given the board that my opponent deployed deep and hidden, and they seeded me the board. It allowed me to set up all my defenses. I dropped in a bunch of repeaters just outside their deployment zone. They had to wade through all of that. I was able to strip whatever arrows that they had as I pushed in, and I was able to hold that room. And by round two, I was already out in front, and it started to steamroll, and it got away from my opponent pretty quick. So I'm not, I'm not saying securing the room is, is a bad thing, like right off the bat, but you have to have the right circumstances to do that. And it's interesting that hacking could be one of the ways, because if you're dropping in a bunch of repeaters in front of your opponent's deployment zone, now they're waiting through that before they can even get to your room. I also would say I was able to benefit from a five-man link and the bonuses that happen. It does help a lot <laughs> to, to be inside the panic room with a five-man link, or at least some of your five-man link inside the room. So any thoughts on that? Any engagement with that? One thing that um, in the central personnel in that room still gets you a point. Hey, that's an excellent point. I didn't even think about that. That's true, because that actually means that in your scenario, even if you get all of those points in the one room that you dominate and have an essential personnel in there, if your opponent has an essential personnel as well, then they could actually tie you. So that's not a guaranteed win. So I would say, like, just as an overview, from my perspective, if you're going second, you have a lot more leeway. You're able to get out in front, score points early. Every point you score each round is a point that you can't get taken away from you. So that's very helpful to get out in front and try to steamroll and respond to what your opponent's doing. 
if you're going first, have a plan. Know what you need to do to get the win. It might mean uh, stripping orders from your opponent. It might mean if the circumstances are right, go and secure that room as well if you feel like you can hold them off. But just know that your, your margins are a lot smaller. There's a lot less wiggle room. Because in the end, I really think that preserving army points in this mission is a really big deal to get the win. And so in that sense, it's more of a kill mission than a zone of control mission than I first thought when I started playing this this last month or two. To be fair, dominating is worth twice as many objective points than retaining your army is. Only partially agree with that point. Even with that, to dominate, you need the army points, right? Sure. Right? So you need army points to do it. Like the more you can preserve your army points, the more likely you're going to be able to dominate the room. Like it's much more of an attrition game, I think, than uh, I gave it credit for from the beginning. Yeah, I agree that it's certainly relevant and that it should definitely be one of your prime objectives to try and not make unnecessary trades downward and things like that. But you can get six points if you hold the room every round with essential personnel, as opposed to the three that you get from having more guys in general. So, I mean, likely they're going to go hand in hand, granted, but not implicitly. Yep, I hear you. Building off of what Devin is saying, though, what I like about this mission is that there are multiple pathways to victory. You don't have to do the same things in order to win. It's There's three different things plus a classified that gets you points. So, you know, yes, you need points to dominate, but you still get three points if you just have more points of guys on the table at the end of the game. So if you can serve your guys and you prevent your opponent from getting into the room, like, you win off of that. Even if you get your guys just completely chewed up, you can still win by getting more points off of having dominated the room and having essential personnel. There's no cut and dried, this is what you have to do to win. It's going to be very situational to what's happening on the table between you and your opponent as to how you're going to win that mission. You you definitely have a plan. There's definitely the idea of, this is what I need to do to win it, but... This is a mission where if that plan starts falling apart, you might do well to have a bit of a backup plan to see where you can get points in a different manner. How do you downshift from your original strategy? And that's why this is a game of tactics over strategy. We've spent all this time talking to general strategy about how you're going to approach the mission. But really, once the dice get rolling and your opponent is playing with you, it's your adjustments and the ability to make good decisions, sound decisions throughout the game that are going to net you that win with the little time we have remaining if we're thinking about list building we've done a lot of list building episodes lately are there any tools that the mission you feel like the mission requires or encourages or what we've talked about camo troops ian like what types of troops do you think will work well what skills or weapons or ammunition are beneficial i just want to give our listeners a bird's eye view of here are the things that you'd be looking out for that you want, would want to add to the list if, as you're tuning your list for this mission. I'd say the common things that you'll probably want, regardless of what faction you're playing, are order-efficient troops, which it sounds kind of trite to say. Like, you always want order-efficient troops, right? But the benefit in this particular scenario is you want to get everyone moving. You don't want to leave things in your deployment zone. You want to avoid the biotech vor particularly at the end of the game. So having troops and fire teams, having bikes or other high movement troops, uh, something to get as much of your forces out of the danger zone as quickly as possible is going to be beneficial, more or less regardless of what you're playing. Petrus can be your friend. Absolutely. And so that's always going to be a benefit in this mission. But besides that, room clearing tools you're going to want to have them available to you. It's going to be a good idea to have template weapons, shotguns of whatever variety. Good close combat troops are going to be pretty valuable in this mission. Those are things that I would say that the mission encourages. You don't necessarily have to have, but you should plan for your opponent to have those things. So if you don't have troops that can stand there and eat a shotgun blast and when you're trying to hold the room, then you might have some trouble. Concur with that. Uh, another thing that I would say 
that you should bring or expect to face is models that have some ability to deploy mines or perimeter weapons because they're going to be very useful in holding that room. The room's big enough that you should be able to place mines in out-of-the-way places so that they don't detonate until somebody walks into the room and can't really be seen from the outside very easily. So it'll make it harder for your opponent to clear those out and make the room more of a kill zone for when they come in. You will have to play some with your own deployment and of your models in that room, crossing templates and things like that. And this is where perimeter weapons are going to be a little more useful. Uh, they also don't need line of fire in order to go after people. They just need zone of control. So I would expect those. This is another area where, if you haven't thought about it, conserving your command tokens may be useful because while I personally tend to use a lot of command tokens to move orders between pools as things die in order to maintain my order efficiency, another area of order efficiency is coordinated orders. And if you have a decent amount of models in or around that room that have deployable weapons that you can do coordinated orders on to lay an instant minefield, that is something to think about to defend that room. I'd also throw in, I like the idea of hackers and hacking in general. We've done a whole episode on the utility of hacking you know, previously, but it's even more prominent in a mission like this. You can anticipate your opponent's going to bring something beefy, maybe a, several things beefy, but even if they're not, you can be spotlighting. And if you've got the guided trait, you're throwing in template weapons into a building that can wreck uh, your opponent and clear the room very easily. I also really like, and I'm kind of envious, honestly, because I've been running a lot of OSS right now, so I don't have access to this, but warbands, I think, are going to be really good for this mission. The ability to throw cheap units that they've got, like that order efficiency that Devin was talking about, the impetuous, they can get up the board quick. They oftentimes come with smoke. Smoke is a really good tool to help you get up inside a build when your opponent knows you're coming. And then... A lot of warbands project a lot of threat, not just through their template weapons, but their CC abilities. And the fact that they're cheap, I really value and rate the ability to early on throw cheap things into that room to clear it out and to try to hold it because you don't feel like you're taking the hit in terms of army points that trying to hold the room with something more expensive like 30, 40 points in and of itself. So um, finally, I would just add with the caveat that I've already talked about how good hacking is for this, being able to send stuff in that isn't hackable other than getting spotlit is really nice. So, yeah, there's, I mean, we could keep going on and on. The EM weapons are awesome. Template, you know, like EMRAT, like we could just keep going on and on. But those are a few of the kind of high level thoughts that we have in terms of the tools that are available to a lot of the factions. Anything else, you guys? I mean, on the note of warbands, they're also typically at least somewhat good at dodging, which is super relevant because you know people are going to have templates to usually bring templates themselves. I made pretty extensive use of warband troops in my last game of Panic Room, and it was pretty effective. You highlighting the dodge, that's a really great tactic, by the way. If you're um, second turn, if you need to get something in to contest the room, but you don't want it to take any arrows on its way in, you can move that troop up just outside a line of fire to the room and then declare dodge. And then if you're successful, you've got two to four inches to move that troop in that gets resolved at the end of the order expenditure. So you don't take arrows. And that could be the difference between securing the room and not. Absolutely. And then on the other side of this with the war bands, them being cheap, you know, if your opponent has mined the room or something like that, you can just run your cheap warband in, detonate all the mines. Even if you take the shot to destroy something else and just eat them and your guy dies, you sacrificed him. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, even though you're trying to conserve points. Because for every cheap warband that you take, you're going to have to balance that in your list with something that's more expensive. And if you had to sacrifice a cheap warband to clear the way for that expensive guy to then get into the room and lock it down, that's just how it goes sometimes. 
Yeah, that's the way to do it, I think. Like, that's the value of taking the warbands early, uh, throwing them in early, is you're still preserving a lot of your army points. I, and that, for me right now, is the big factor in, in winning this mission. I just played with really expensive warbands. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I don't get warbands, so I like, I'm envious. That, that's all. I, I just, a longing heart. I've done that with Steel Phalanx, so my warbands were not five, six points. They were 20, 30, 40 points. <laughs> All right, we got to wrap this thing up. But uh, before we get to our final thoughts, we want to take a moment to thank Mythic Games for sponsoring the podcast. Mo Games is a local game store based in Santa Cruz, and they're also an online supplier of all things Infinity at great prices. So as a part of its sponsorship, Mythic Games will be providing a discount for our patrons, as well as a $40 gift card that will be raffled off once a month. So if you want... A piece of that you got to sign up to be a part of our patreon team but what's better than games mo games so speaking of patreon you can support the podcast by becoming a patron not only does it help us out but it grants you a number of benefits such as access to extra content and we the content creators find a link to our patreon page in the show notes as well as a link to our discord channel and come and join our growing community Super supportive of all things Infinity. A lot of places to talk about list building, ideas, strategies, tactics. We're really liking what we're seeing happen with our growing community. But with that said, Devin, Ian, what are your final thoughts regarding Panic Room and mission-focused gameplay? love mission-focused gameplay. It makes the game interesting. It keeps me from getting bored with Infinity like I have with so many other games that devolve into the exact same games gameplay styles and tactics every time because the, every mission is effectively the same so it's the biggest draw for me is the strength of this system in being a competitive system and having interesting missions to play that said in regards to this particular mission i'm going to sound like a broken record but practice 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 if you're going to play a tournament that has this mission play it a few times before you go Talk with your opponent, get that feedback, adjust your list so that you have this fine-tuned down to an art to what you are going to do to accomplish that mission when you get to the tournament. Is it going to be perfect? No, because every situation is going to be a little bit different. But if you have that zoned in to what you are going to do, the adjustments you'll need to make on the table at that tournament are going to be minimal. And your chance of success is gone up way higher than it would if you're going in blind. So. Practice makes perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being able to play the missions and get the on-table experience and translate the theoretical into practice is, is invaluable before you're going into an event. Speaking of which, on our Discord, we have people periodically that are getting games on Tabletop Simulator. If you want to jump by, there's a community there for that purpose. Like A lot of like the games that I've been playing recently have been uh, event prep for some of the people on the server who were playing uh, in Vol SE's recent tournament, in uh, ODD, and I think maybe for the Remote Access League as well. So we like to talk about the game a lot, obviously, but uh, there's a space there to actually you know, get your reps in, as it were, as well. I would concur with both of you. If I had done this podcast two months ago, before I had played Panic Room, I might have had all a lot of the same theories, but my evolution of how I think about this mission has gone through a pretty radical change between the kinds of lists I was building in theory before and then as I was playtesting them um, over the course of like four or five games. And I'm sure it'll keep evolving as we keep playing, but it's getting those reps. So that's why we do this thing, right? It's just fun to play this game. That being said, we're going to close things up by signing off. And for all of us with Metachemistry, this has been Andrew, Devin, Ian, and that's the meta.